Hey, what's up, everybody? On this episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley, we get into some chatter about the NFL with Joe Fan of NBC Sports Northwest. He's a Seattle Seahawks insider, so some insight into that team's approach to the draft and his thoughts on former UH receiver John Ursua. Speaking of Hawaii football, want to send up some aloha for Ben Yee. The longtime booster for the Hawaii program passed away last week. He was a fixture at UH events and practices and was always greeting everyone with a smile. He was passionate, enthusiastic, and he is going to be greatly missed. Love you, Ben. Rest in peace. All right, here's the show. All right, what's up, Jordan? How's everything going? We got one of your boys as a guest on the show, a guy you go back a little ways with. Yeah, a guy I uh, got to know in college, uh, Joe Fan, who's worked his way up uh, through the NFL ranks as a reporter, now as the full-time Seahawks reporter for NBC Sports Northwest. So uh, the NFL drafts on the horizon. NFL never stops. So we figured we'd get him on the phone line, uh, a guy that uh, I've known for a few years now. Yeah, we talked to him a couple of days ago, so we'll get into that here uh, in just a little bit. But big news also coming out of the Heli household. I saw you posted on Twitter. You're saying that we have gotten to that point now in the quarantine where your girlfriend is giving you a haircut. How to turn Yeah, out. that's right. Um, you know, I don't know if we'll post any of the clips online, but yeah, <laughs> uh, she did pretty good. She did pretty good. One of her friends uh, from back when she was living in Seattle is a uh, actual professional at cutting people's hair, so she kind of walked her through the process. Uh, and I got to say, I was I was pleasantly surprised. I, I think she even surprised herself. So can't complain. Uh, yeah. But it was getting it was getting to the point. It was getting way too hot and scraggly. I needed I needed a trim. Oh, so this is like a legit haircut that you just got. I was like picturing her just holding a big bowl over the top of your head and like doing one of those like makeshift quarantine cuts. That's about as good as it's going to get. But it uh, looks kind of solid, man. Yeah, we figured uh, we had time. So we uh, we got a little ambitious. Uh, and if it got a little squirrely you figure we could just buzz it all off so that was go. the that was the luxury we had uh, well we're looking forward to uh the interview with joe we'll get to that here momentarily but let's start with the warm-up we're still buzzing a little bit because we just got done watching the first two episodes of the last dance and i have to be honest it was kind of all it was cracked up to be right i mean it was about as highly hyped a docu-series as you'll come across and it happens to come at a time where we are starving for some kind of sports content and i found myself anticipating the start of this thing like I was anticipating the start of the NBA Finals or something like that. What was your overall general reaction to the first couple of episodes of The Last Dance and the story of the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan? It's what it felt like. And it wasn't just opening day anticipation. It was like the start of a playoff series anticipation, like game one of the NBA Finals, game one of the World Series or something like that. When it came down to the anticipation, I was like, okay, you know, I didn't want to get too excited going into it. Didn't want to get too overhyped. But uh, as the days went on this week and we got closer and closer to this Sunday, uh, I found myself pretty jazzed, man, pretty juiced up. And I, I, was, I was riveted, two hours. It, it went by in the blink of an eye, quite yeah. honestly. I was like, wait, that, we're, we're done with two hours already? Um, everything I think that we are hoping for, right? And it, it very much was a wet the appetite first couple of episodes. I mean, we're in it for 10 hours. We get that. We still got eight hours left. But it was a lot of what we were, I think, anticipating in terms of some of the behind-the-scenes footage that we hadn't seen, uh, hearing some from 
from some folks involved with the story of Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls that we haven't really heard from all that often in the past. And we'll get into some of that, but a refresher of a history lesson as to what exactly it was like back then, uh, especially at the back end, right, during that last season when they were rock stars beyond imagination. Yeah, they were Beatles-like. There's no doubt about it. The biggest show in not just town, but maybe like on earth at that time uh, in the world of sports. Uh, and we are so stoked on this thing that we're actually putting an extra episode of this show, sort of a special mini version of Let's Talk Sports. Uh, we're calling it LTS Quick Snaps. And this one in particular is going to be dedicated throughout this docu-series. Uh, every Sunday, we'll uh, watch these shows and put something together to post just as an aside to our normal podcast. So uh, you can catch that and we'll go a little more in-depth as to our reaction to it. And maybe uh, we can uh, enjoy the experience with all of you listening. Uh, and one of the more interesting questions uh, has been in my mind, um, which all-time player or players have the best case to threaten Michael Jordan as sort of the consensus greatest basketball player of all time. Do you think anybody even does? Is there a group of players that you think, you know, depending on the day, depending on uh, the kind of analytics applied, uh, would at least have an argument to be made? Yeah, I mean, this is the, the golden sports radio topic, right? This is chumming the water if you're looking for callers or if you're looking to yeah. spend a, an entire show or an entire week of shows you, you throw this out there right it's the michael versus who right and of course depends what generation you talk to i i think in a lot of ways right lebron what he has done in the last decade and a half even more so now uh you know as, as we head into the 2020s and, and what he is doing i think there are a lot of people who will obviously put his resume forward you, you talk to folks in the 80s who, who came up with that golden era, the renaissance of NBA basketball. And they'll tell you they've never seen a person play basketball with the array of skill sets at the size of a Magic Johnson and what he could do as a point guard who lined up at center in an NBA finals. Guys like that. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who has scored more points than anybody in the history of basketball. Bill Russell, who invented winning if you will, and, and how good he was at just winning championships back in his day. Wilt and just the pure skill he brought at his size. Uh, and we're going back all those ways, right? And there, there are some other players, I think, that, that people will throw out there. But who's the best? The barbershop conversation. The water cooler talk. What generation has the greatest claim to this? Oh, I love it. Did you have that conversation with Lauren while she was cutting your hair, barbershop style? Yeah, yeah. So we talked a bit about it, uh, you know, and got a little bit into it. But yeah, I think that's the fun part, right? I mean, you even talk to, to some folks and be like, hey, for them, Kobe's the greatest basketball right. player they've ever seen, right? And I, I would argue that, you know, Larry Burr, what he could do, just the skill and, and how he could combine his size with his shooting touch. It's, it's a great conversation. Yeah, yeah. I, with all due respect to the names that you brought up, I think you touched on the individuals that I would personally include in my immediate list. Uh, MJ is at the top, in my opinion, uh, but the guys who would have at least arguments to be made on their behalf would be LeBron, would be Magic Johnson, uh, Bill Russell because of all the championships accumulated, uh, Kareem because of the extreme scoring and maybe having the single greatest offensive weapon in the history of basketball, the skyhook, uh, and Wilt Chamberlain because, yeah, he was, with respect, obviously, to his era, but nobody more dominant uh, perhaps 
than Wilt the Still, Wilt Chamberlain. So uh, I, I like to rely a little bit on the eye test. And I think this is where it gets tricky from generation to generation because I didn't grow up watching Wilt. I saw Kareem more at the tail end. Uh, Bill Russell was a little bit before my time. You know, I think there's a difference between having the greatest career and being the best thing you've ever seen. And I think that's where it gets a little bit more fudgy for me because Michael's got the resume, there's no doubt. And he was the ultimate winner, uh, as was Bill Russell. Uh, But at times when I saw LeBron in his peak performances, it's like, I don't know if I've ever seen anything on a basketball court that is quite like that. It would be akin to the debate of greatest quarterback. And maybe you go Tom Brady, the resume would obviously speak for itself. But I would argue that maybe Aaron Rodgers is the guy who when you see him play, you're like, wow, that's probably the best quarterbacking that I have seen in my lifetime as a football observer. So uh, why there's so much multitude in terms of potential responses to that uh, is because it just really depends on how you look at it and and what you want to weigh as the more valuable aspects. Uh, All right. So that'll be fun. And we have five more weeks to talk about that. Don't forget to check out the LTS quick snaps uh, where we'll go a little more in depth on the first two episodes, but time to uh, get to our game time portion of the program. And this is some somber news. The remainder of the Hawaii prep sports season has been officially canceled. Not anything that was unpredictable. Going to be hard to play sports when students aren't in school. Uh, But uh, what were your immediate thoughts upon hearing this news? Yeah, not surprised. Uh, I I think most people figured this was much more the likelihood, almost inevitable, um, with just the postponement of school and and really no feasible path to get kids back in school uh, and then allowing for extracurricular activities. Uh, when it came down to it. Uh, But that doesn't soften the blow, I think, for the seniors, right? Immediately you think about the senior student athletes who are playing spring sports who didn't get their last shot, didn't get their last opportunity to go take the field. And and there are a lot of talented individuals out there. There are a lot of talented teams, uh, you know, who maybe got robbed of an opportunity to do something special from a one-loss standpoint, from a chasing championship standpoint. But I think it's much bigger than that, right? There are a ton of kids and the vast majority of kids who are going to go play a spring sport for their respective high school, that that was going to be the last time they were going to take part in competitive organized sports. Um, And that I think is the hard pill to swallow because everything on the other side of, of the accolades and and the championships that you're going to go after, it's about being out there. It's about competing. It's about being part of a team. It's about going out there with your friends and some of your best friends and making memories. Uh, And that's the part that is just so hard to swallow. And and we've gone through different waves of this, right? Uh, Whether it's been at the collegiate level and and a lot of of high schools around the state, a lot of high school leagues around the the country didn't even get to finish their winter sports season, right? We've seen a lot of that. And and Scott Van Pelt's done an incredible job on, on SportsCenter kind of doing his part to honor a lot of seniors. But just not having that, being, being robbed of that opportunity, not because of, of some bureaucrat's decision, not because of some funding shortfall. Uh, this is just something that, that, that nobody could fathom and, and nobody could be prepared for in terms of getting ready to that extent. So, yeah, that, that's the part that immediately comes to mind is that a, a lot of young student athletes had their careers cut very, very short and didn't have an opportunity to go finish things out and it really just got robbed of an opportunity to go out there and play. Yeah, because we get hung up on the individuals, the, the prep student athletes who are big-time prospects, right, and are being recruited in front of the nation. 
but there are so many more cases of student athletes who aren't going to have an opportunity to play at the next level. Uh, really what it comes down to is, is at the basis of competition and participation and extracurricular activities is just to give these kids life lessons, right? And, and, and apply them with the tools that they can then utilize in their adult lives going forward, right? It just is part of the development. And so you're missing out on that. You're missing out on some of the development and learning that is uh, supposed to take place in the classroom where uh, usually it is most productive. Uh, and so, yeah, I feel for the kids because they're missing out on so much of that valued experience. Uh, but I also feel for the coaches, right? I mean, they put in a lot of time. In a lot of cases, they're going to be back. But you mentioned there was no way you could really plan for this. And I think looking forward, what is now becoming a bit of the conundrum is how do you plan for next season, right? In fact, there was an interesting article, Rodney Yap, uh, one of the guys that we know here on Maui, uh, he put together an article for the Honolulu Star Advertiser, included a quote from MIL Executive Director Joe Balangitao, as well as Lahaina Luna football coach, longtime veteran football coach Bobby Watson. Uh, and basically, uh, they are questioning whether it's realistic to expect a return to action even for fall sports, especially with regard to teams that travel. There will be distinctive changes in policy uh, to take appropriate precautions. That'll definitely be part of the conversation or any kind of discourse in putting together what this thing may look like moving forward. We just don't know. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point, right? We've had this discussion on, on this podcast when it's come to college football. What's that going to look like? Are we going to start on time? Of course, that that's a similar conversation they're going to have at the prep level when it comes to, to fall sports and the, the obvious starting point is, is getting kids back on campus and getting them back to school in that nature because we're not going to have any sports unless that happens. And we can get into all the details and, and the funding and, and the resources and, and, and everything that would be necessary to, to do some of those things that you've already talked about. And I'm, I'm sure we'll get there uh, as we get closer to the fall. But I, I think the, the, the critical point uh, that, that you bring up that I'll, that I'll echo is the travel, especially here in Maui County for the Maui Interscholastic League. Um, you know, as unique a league as you'll find anywhere around the country, it's a three island league. And you're talking about, you know, places where you need to fly to get to a league game, places where you need to take a ferry to get to a league game, places where you need to go through what is currently a road checkpoint to get to East Maui to go play a game in Hana or something like that. So it's as difficult to figure out here where we are in Maui County as it is anywhere in the country. All right. Uh, well, it's time to get to our main event, if you will. And that is our interview that we recorded uh, with Joe Fan of NBC Sports Northwest. Did this a couple of days ago. He's a Seattle Seahawks insider. And so we'll talk about the team's approach to the draft. Plus, we got a little bit uh, of a discussion about John Ursua and what his future with the team may hold. Of course, uh, good stuff here uh, from Joe Fan. Let's get right to it. All right, Joe. Well, uh, thanks for spending some time with us. We appreciate it. How has this quarantine affected your work schedule? How has it affected the way you uh, have approached your gig? Yeah, you know what? I'm lucky enough to where it hasn't affected my job a ton because, you know, when I used to in, in previous you know jobs, I worked for like four NFL teams. I worked for the Tennessee Titans and worked for the Niners. So from that standpoint, like, the job was similar, but it was very much more corporate to where like you're in the office nine to five, even during the off season. So, um, you know, with this new gig with NBC sports Northwest, um, I work remotely quite a bit to where I'm always at home. Um, you know, if I'm not at the Seahawks facility during the season and I'm not, you know, making a trip to Portland, which is where our headquarters is, um, you know, I'm working from home, you know, a large part of the time I kind of have a setup in my, uh, downstairs in my house to where I can do all my TV hits from here. And they've hooked me up with all the equipment for that. So 
work-wise, it's all been pretty similar for me. Um, you know, luckily the NFL season has kind of continued to churn on as, you know, free agency, you know, went on and free agency basically started right after the stay at home orders went out. So, um, you know, we've been at this for a month and a half now and then with the draft coming up next week, um, you know, it'll continue to be busy. It just, it's just a little bit different, right? I didn't go to owners meetings, you know, I haven't been traveling to Portland and then I'll be covering the draft from home as opposed to going to BMAC and Seahawks headquarters. So a little bit things altered, but I'm very lucky that, that most of my work life has remained pretty consistent. Does it make it more difficult that you have to work remotely as you're approaching something as epic as a draft or, or the draft process? I think it's a bummer, you know, like I think, you know, it's not have owners meetings. It's a, a big part of the off season where it's just good networking. It's good to see people. You're able to get some good content out of it. Um, and then the draft, yeah, it'd be weird to cover that from home because I'm used to being at a team facility or going to the draft. I got to do that a couple of times, um, as well, where it, you know, you just, it's, it's just odd, right? It's such a big event, but when you're working from your couch and in sweatpants, it doesn't really feel, um, you know, to, you know, the same degree of importance. So, um, work-wise it'll all end up being the same and workflow will be the same, but just, you know, being at home will be a little bit different, but again, all things considered, I'm super lucky that. I've been able to kind of continue to be busy from a work standpoint as this has all gone on. Yeah. Well, what's it like being professionally back kind of home in the, in the Seattle area? You mentioned you've been to Nashville, uh, the Bay area, I'm sure as a Seahawks fan growing up, I don't know how much you envisioned working for the 49ers at one point, but I know that was a blast for you, but uh, just being back home and getting to do uh, something that you love professionally, what's that been like? Man, it's been a blessing. It's been amazing. I think when I left, I came home, you know, Jordan, you and I went to school in the same area. You up in Eagle Rock. I was down in Orange County at Chapman University. But when I came home for like a year and a half-ish, um, I guess maybe almost two years. Um, and then um, when I bounced uh, for the 2014 season to the work for the Titans, I never knew if I'd come back. You know what I mean? It's just kind of one of those things where you don't know where this career path is going to take you and you don't really chart a course for yourself. You kind of just go where the opportunities are. So um, when I was in the Bay area, I, I knew I was ready for a new opportunity. I knew I was, I was done with the team side and it was an incredible opportunity. I love that job. I love that organization. I still have so many friends there, um, but I wanted to get on the network side. And so whether it was NBC, ESPN, whatever the case may be, and I was open to going wherever because it's kind of just how you have to be. And I was a finalist for two positions uh, with ESPN. Actually, one of them would have taken me to Cincinnati and one of them would have taken me to Buffalo, Buffalo, New York. So I was ready to pick up and move to, you know, you know, anywhere, which is gnarly. Right. And so <laughs> it's crazy how things work out. Cause I didn't get those jobs. And like a week later, this opportunity came back up and, you know, again, the, the network's based in Portland, but very quickly, I was like, hey, I'm all about this opportunity, but I'm not going to cover a team in Seattle from Portland. I'm not going to make that commute every day. I'm like, it's just unreasonable. And they were down with me being up here. And, and it's the way it's worked out. It's incredible. You know, my family's still up here. I got two nieces up here who were growing up. I got, you know, all my high school buddies. We have a men's league together on Monday nights. And so getting back in the full where I feel like I had so much FOMO for, you know, five, six years of being <laughs> gone. It's, it's fun to be back in that network again. And you know, there's no telling how long it'll last. I signed a two-year contract here. I just finished up year one. So would love to be here for a long time. Who knows if that will end up being the case, but certainly two years I feel lucky to have because, uh, again, I didn't know if that would ever be the case. Yeah, what an opportunity for sure. Let's get into the Seahawks a bit. Uh, you know, you, you you followed this team for a long time now, covering them on a day-to-day -day basis. What, what's been the 
the key to this transition because they, they keep finding themselves in the playoffs and really the the constants have been the the front office Pete Carroll Russ and and Bobby Wagner and everybody else has seemed to be out the door since those Super Bowl runs and and yet here they are in contention every year I mean I think it, there's just something to be said for having a franchise quarterback and having stability from a coaching staff standpoint and from um, a front office standpoint, right? I mean, that automatically sets your floor at like eight and eight, you know what I mean? Um, especially given, you know, how tough mentally these teams are to wear. They don't get rattled late in games. They're able to win ugly games on a regular basis, probably far more regularly than, than fans would, would prefer them to. And, you know, in, instead of just blowing teams out and winning comfortably against lesser opponents. But, um, there's just never a time that you, you don't ever go into a game with Russell Wilson thinking you don't have a chance. Um, you don't ever look at a, a point in a game where you're out of it with Russell Wilson, the quarterback, and he is truly a magician. And I still somehow think he is, you know, underrated from a standpoint of, I think everyone obviously knows he's good, but I think people still view him to a certain degree as gimmicky and it's not that impressive. He's not a pocket power, I mean, all of these different things that have plagued him. Right. You know, and he continues to have to fight off these doubters. And it's like, yeah, he won a Super Bowl, but it was the best defense of all time. And it's like, sure, right? But, like, time to give this guy his due. I mean, just look at that Packers game down 20-3 to three at halftime, and he's got the ball in his hands. And if not for a Malik Turner drop, they potentially score a go-ahead and game, ultimately game-winning touchdown that sends them to the NFC Championship game. They got smoked by the Niners in the first half in Week 17. Russ goes unconscious in the second half and has them within an inch of, of winning the division. So he is truly a special, special talent. And as long as he is healthy and in uh, under center for the Seahawks, they're going to have a chance. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, perennially he's in the MVP race and it, it still seems as though people don't really appreciate his overall greatness. Uh, and, and I kind of want to expound on that a little bit. Uh, what have you observed in your covering now for the past season uh, or a year or so of, of the Seattle Seahawks organization. What have you observed through Russell Wilson as far as the kind of professional that he is, the way he operates? You know, I think a lot of – Russell Wilson is he is cheesy, right? He's kind of a dork. He doesn't have the swagger of other NFL superstars, right? But, like, everything he says, he lives by. You know what I mean? He's all about it. That guy puts in so much work and maintenance to his body. I mean, he has a whole, it's like a NASCAR pit crew that works for him, like full-time. He's a full-time chef, a full-time physical therapist, a full-time massage therapist. These people are like part of his family and he travels with them. He brings them on family vacations. Like it is his team and he has assembled this team that keeps him in prime shape. And there's a reason why he hasn't missed a game, has barely missed any practices. Um, I mean, that you know, despite taking the hits he does, I mean, that guy is an absolute specimen and takes care of his body unlike any athlete I've ever been around. So um, from his prehab to his rehab, I mean, that guy um, is so dedicated to his craft that, um, again, you can't help but just respect it, right? Even if he's the villain because you're a Niners fan, a, a Cardinals fan, a Rams fan, whoever, or you think, my goodness, I'm kind of over that holier-than-thou persona right like okay I get it Russell Wilson's personality isn't for you but like you just got to tip your cap to the guy because he puts himself in such great situations and this is a guy who um, I remember hearing a story of when he was going through the pre-draft process um, you know there were some college coaches and they were going to go to NFL teams and be like hey 
he's going to say some kind of zany stuff. Like you're just, and you're just going to want to roll your eyes and be like, this guy is so full of it, but he believes every single word, right? When he says, I want to win Super Bowls. I'm going to be one of the best quarterbacks of all time. I'm going to play till 45 and do all these different things. He's dead serious. And so, um, and it's a, it's an optimism and a thought process and a mindset that not many people can relate to because it is so vast, right? I mean, not many people have that self-belief in themselves. And so when you can't relate to it, it makes it really hard to buy into him being legitimate from that standpoint and, and believing what he is selling himself, right? He's not trying to sell it to anybody else. He sells it to himself. Um, and I think there's just not a lot of athletes that you see that are like that. Yeah, and, and obviously the team is going to be motivated with an established franchise quarterback in place like that to try to build something around him. And I do think at least some of the chatter out of the organization is that they are motivated to try to establish a little bit more of a firm running game uh, to go along with Russell Wilson's talents. But what do you think the target is here or what needs are they most likely to try to fill here via the draft next week? Yeah, they're in a pretty good spot to where, like, I mean, outside of the pass rusher thing, right? I mean, the, the fact that Jadavian Clowney is still a free agent, and that's just a saga that doesn't seem like it's going to end anytime soon. So that is the glaring need, but you're not going to fill that at pick 27. Um, not to that degree, obviously. You know, Chase Young's going at pick two, and any elite edge rusher is going in the top 10, top 15 at the latest, right? So, you know, that's still a need, and I could see them going after a guy like Yetter Gross Matos um, out of Penn State. Um, but again, they're project guys with upside. So you have to project what they're going to turn into as opposed to what they are right now. But edge rusher remains um, a need. Um, offensive tackle, in my opinion, is a huge need for this team and not necessarily in the immediate future. Again, you're looking down the road on this. But um, when you're looking at uh, your tackles right now, you have Brandon Shell, who's replacing Jermaine Effetti. He signed him to a two-year deal. He's kind of a stopgap guy, most likely. And then you have Dwayne Brown, who can still play, play good football, but, you know, struggling to stay healthy. He'll be 36 by the time week one rolls around. And so you need to start looking down the road of who is our left tackle of the future. And you don't have that guy right now on the roster. They've got a ton of interior offensive linemen, but they're still pretty thin at tackle. And so to me, you look at a guy like Josh Jones or a guy for, like Austin Jackson uh, or Lucas Niang um, and, and, and see or Isaiah Wilson uh, out of Georgia and, and look at those guys and give them a hard look and say, hey, could this guy benefit from learning behind Dwayne Brown for a year and then ultimately be ready to step in and be the heir apparent at left tackle? Because um, it is one of the most important positions in football. They're hard to find. And if you feel really good about one of those guys at pick 27 or trading back then early in the second round or in the middle of the second round, there is some depth to this class in terms of upside type players. Uh, I do think you have to give a hard look at that. Uh, you still need a running back um, given that Rashad Penny's not going to ready for week one with the knee injury. Chris Carson also in the last year of his deal. Um, you need a backup quarterback, which I think at, you know, at the end of the day, they should just bring back Geno Smith, but they could target that. And then I think they owe it to themselves to dip into receiver, um, you know, an all-time great receiver class. Um, they've got DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, obviously, who were tremendous players. Um, but they really struggled last year to have that third option that was really a consistent and quality contributor. David Moore took a step back in 2019 after a really promising 2018 season. Um, Malik Turner was inconsistent, obviously had the big drop in the playoffs. Um, Jerome Brown was a non-factor. They never really gave John Ursula a chance. They signed Philip Dorsett, but he's more of a situational type player. And so, again, I, I think they owe it to themselves to, to tap into that group. Um, 
you know, with there's so much depth in the middle rounds and they have three day two picks as it stands right now. I think it'd be wise to use one of those in a wide receiver. So long winded rant there, but I think that generally is the rundown of what their blueprint should be going into the draft. Yeah. With all that being said, you mentioned a John Ursula university of Hawaii products, somebody, a lot of folks here in the islands are very familiar with. He had that big catch that, that got them down to the doorstep in week 17 against the Niners. So what, what do you think he brings to the table and, and what does maybe the future look like for him, as you mentioned, with so much uncertainty battling for that third receiver spot? Man, Seahawks fans were up in arms last year, all year that he just couldn't get a shot, right? Like, what are we missing, right? Like, Jerome Brown, you know who he is. David Moore, like, kind of is what he is. Uh, Malik Turner, fine, inconsistent, whatever. Like, let's just see what, what John Ursua can do because you saw some flashes during the preseason. I think he only had, like, two or three catches, but each one went for, like, 15 to 25. And he had some, you know, run after the catch ability. Uh, and there was a good bit of it. It's just like, okay, like, I like what I see. You know, and then when they cut uh, Gary Jennings, who was a fourth-round pick, uh, that happened when they brought up Josh Gordon. When they saw, when they, I couldn't remember exactly what move was. Um, but they let go of a fourth-round pick and kept John Ursua, right? So they obviously like him. Then he makes a big catch on, you know, his only target of the year. And then they didn't play it all in the playoffs. And you're thinking, what the heck? You know, like this is a guy who we want to see more of. And so um, Pete Carroll and John Schneider would tell you they're very excited about him. They think he could be a really solid slot receiver. Um, but again, at this point, who knows, right? Because we just haven't seen it. And, and given the Seahawks haven't given him a chance yet, um, is that because he wasn't ready? Is that because they made a mistake? Who really knows, right? Because you're not there every day watching practice and seeing how he's doing, you know, once training camp ends. That's all you get to see. So. Uh, he is a name to watch, absolutely, and, and Hawaii fans should, should remain excited about what he could potentially uh, contribute this year with the Seahawks. Yeah, I think that, that is exciting stuff to hear. Uh, you guys did a great uh, five-part panel series uh, on NBC Sports Northwest's website for the folks that can go check that out, uh, kind of explored the draft from a Seahawks angle, but also from a little more macro level. Uh, one of the, the series was uh, Draft Crush, and, and you asked your panelists to uh, who, who do you have your eye on here? I mean, is it guys at the very top, the quarterbacks, the wide receivers, uh, or is it somebody else that you kind of have uh, a bit of a keen eye toward in this year's draft class? Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly eager to see how this quarterback class shakes out. Um, you know, I think that who's going to go number two, uh, not overall, but off the quarterback draft board, whether it's, um, whether it's Tua uh, whether it's Justin Herbert, does Jacob Easton sneak into the first round? How high does Jordan Love go? Because it's really an interesting quarterback landscape in the league right now because you have guys like Jameis Winston and Cam Newton who are free agents and don't have a job. And then you're looking at this quarterback class that's pretty deep, um, you know, but ultimately guys who – outside of Joe Burrow and, you know, in Cincinnati – who's going to be, you know, a starter week one, probably nobody, right? Like I imagine Miami will still roll with Fitzpatrick and give whoever they pick um, the opportunity to kind of to learn and grow as a backup. Um, and then you could see a mid season switch who knows, but um, and, you know, maybe Miami's that say, Hey, we're, con you know, we like what we've seen in training camp and we think we're contenders and we want to roll with whoever we pick maybe. Um, but I, you know, I'm expecting that Tyrod Taylor is going to be the same situation in Los Angeles with the chargers. So um where the quarterbacks go and um, when and if any of them play as a rookie outside of Burrow, I think is going to be really interesting. And I think this wide receiver class is also uh, fascinating because I think you have kind of the top three that are um, 
kind of solidified themselves in terms of Henry, Henry Ruggs, C.D. Lamb, Lamb, and Jerry Judy. Then beyond that, it's very much a pick your flavor, right? Because there are so many studs to where who's going to go higher than maybe expected in mock drafts, who's going to fall. Um, because you're going to see teams that fall in love with some of these guys, like maybe, you know, Michael Pittman, who's, you know, insane ball skills at the USC prototype size. Um, could he sneak up into the late first round or early second round or does he fall? Right. I mean, I think there's just so many of them that it all comes down to who's drafting a wide receiver and which specific player do they fall in love with? Because every GM is going to fall in love with a different guy. Do you have a couple of favorites? Uh, for instance, with regard to the quarterbacks, the big debate is with Joe Burrow, the consensus number one overall, that it's either Herbert or Tua second off the board at that position. Do you lean one way or another? Do you have a favorite among the receiver talents? Uh, with the quarterbacks, yeah, Burrow's an easy number one, in my opinion. Um, and then I think, I think to me, Tua showed you more in college, and I think the medicals are, have come back clean enough um, to where he'd be my number two option. But you know, it is different. Obviously he's smaller. He doesn't look like your prototype and Justin Herbert is the prototype, but I think, you know, Justin Herbert left you wanting more in college as well a little bit. Right. So, um, you know, I'm not sold on Jordan love. I'm not sure if I'm using a, a, a first round pick on him to where I believe he's going to be my quarterback of the future. And then I think Jacob Eason's got all sorts of question marks, um, from a leadership standpoint and from a quarterback standpoint. So outside of the top three, I'm a little bit wary of, of any of the quarterbacks, but I, I think, to me, Tua is such an exciting you know, prospect, but it is a little bit of a lottery ticket. Is he going to be Russell Wilson or is he going to be um, you know, someone that doesn't pan out, right? So um, from a receiver standpoint, man, there are so many. Um, but I think if I'm a Seahawks fan, um, I mean, you got to look in day two because I don't think they have – it's, it's not a, enough of a need to use that first-round pick on it. But, um, yeah, I mean, I love Michael Pittman. You know, I saw him torch University of Washington – on a couple of occasions to where you just, you know, he might not be the perfect complement to DK Metcalf, but like all of a sudden you roll out two, six, four, six, five receivers and you have Tyler Lockett. You, you can move all the way around. Like to me, that's fascinating. Uh, I think LaVisca Chenault is really interesting because he might be kind of your Debo Samuel, a Jace type player where you know, Debo Samuel is an absolute stud. And you look at what he did, you know, just as a rookie being moved all over the place. And he got like what four carries in the Super Bowl. Um, just a versatile player to where like you just put the ball in his hands and he's electric. Right. So, um, you know, I know Denzel Mims is on the wish list out of Baylor of a lot of Seahawks fans. Um, again, I think it's less of I've fallen in love with this player, but more of like, I'm really curious to see who John Schneider and Pete Carroll have fallen in love with. Because again, like I, I'll never pretend to, to be a Mel Kuyper, Todd McShay draft expert. Right. I watch enough to where I, I know guys I really like, but, um, to me, it's more, I try to tap into, well, who do they like? Who, who are, you know, the experts hearing that, that are the guys to, to watch out for, which is why I enjoyed that draft panel series so much. Cause you know, I could talk all day about it, but I want to hear from you. You know, you guys spend all year grinding this tape and focusing on it to where, you know, that's not my, my area of expertise. So, um, the draft is fun for me from that standpoint, cause you, you kind of get to be a fan a little bit and be like, I love watching these guys in college and, and see where they go and then see how it pans out years down the road. Yeah, and so much of it is intriguing because of the chess game that occurs based on free agency. And you mentioned Jadavian Clowney and that saga. Um, all accounts seem to have the Seahawks uh, with the desire to re-sign him, but it doesn't necessarily look like that is actually going to happen. Um, what has gone wrong there? Why do you think that relationship is so tenuous at the moment? 
I don't know if it is even tenuous. I, I, to me, like it's, it's just a player who believes he's worth this dollar amount and a team he believes he's worth this dollar amount and two sides who are not going to meet in the middle, you know, as of yet. Right. Um, they haven't been able to bridge that gap. So um, I think coronavirus had a huge impact on it for him, you know, not being able to travel and take a physical and convince teams like, look, Hey, I'm healthy. I'm all these things that turn on the tape. I am worth this number. Right. And this is what you're going to get out of me. Right. This is what he views as his time to cash in as he should. Right. I mean, not many players, you know, especially players of his caliber get to see the open market. Um, so this is his time to cash in and he believes he's worth a certain amount of money. And, you know, I'm never going to begrudge a player from trying to get every dollar he can. You know, now it's getting to the point where it's probably going to behoove him to take a one year deal and try to run it back and, and kind of recoup some of that value. You feel like you've lost, um, over the course of this last year. So um, at this point, he's been patient enough that there's no reason to lose that patience. At this point, you should just ride it out until you, you know, the, the travel ban is lifted and you're able to go um, and you're able to go to a team facility and, and take a physical. So it is pretty bizarre. I feel for him because I think he's gotten unlucky to a degree. Um, you know, I think I, personally am of the belief that he's worth more than what teams are offering. Um, you know, but it is really interesting. It's very rare for a, a player of his caliber to remain on the open market for as long as he has been. Yeah. One, one defensive lineman uh, that made the move and, and got a big deal, albeit via trade um, is DeForest Buckner, a Hawaii guy played for the 49ers. I, I know you guys overlapped a little bit when, when you were working for that franchise. Yep. Uh, what'd you make of, of the move to, to go ahead and, and, I don't know if cut him loose is the right word, but but move on from DeForest, knowing that he was due in line for a big payday and, and the fact that the Colts were the ones who were willing to, to go get him and give him that big contract. I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's still shocking, right? Like if you told any 49ers fan a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, that Eric Armstead would be essentially be picked over DeForest Buckner, like you, you'd be crazy, right? Like there's no way Eric Armstead's a bust. He's not worth it. Defoe is a future face of the franchise because he is. DeForest, if there's anyone you'd want to pay massive top dollar money to, it's DeForest Buckner. Dude is an absolutely incredible human being, hard worker, amazing teammate. Like that is the dude that you pay and don't give a second thought about, right? There's other guys like you pay and it kind of keeps you up at night. It's like, man, are we going to get the same player tomorrow as we had yesterday now with this new money, right? Is that hunger still going to be there? And that goes through every front office's thought process when dishing out big contracts so um but it makes sense right eric armstead emerged has, has now become you know uh, a go-to player for them he costs five million dollars cheaper per year than deforest buckner and you were able to get a first round pick for defoe so not only are you um, not having to pay him but you are able to ship him somewhere that gets you in the top 15 of the first round and a team like the niners as loaded as they are at this point like they're not going to be picking in the top 15 very often for the next five years, if at all, right? At least something would have to go terribly wrong. Jimmy G would have to get hurt again or something for that to happen. So, um, you know, when you know that money is tight, um, you've got to find ways to get creative. And you know, they made the most of DeForest Buckner. It has nothing to do with not wanting him, right? It just comes down to a numbers game. You can't keep and pay everybody. That's just how it works. And so I'm sure it was really hard for them to pull the trigger because, um, you know, they did love him so much as they should, right? Uh, for all the reasons I've just mentioned, but I think it does make a whole lot of sense and good for Defoe, man, getting that bag, huge payday. And I think the Colts are a really, really promising roster. They're very young. 
They're very talented. Um, you know, with Phillip Rivers at quarterback now, I don't know how much he has left in the tank, um, but that's a talented offensive line. It's a talented defense. Um, and I think they are really a sleeper in the AFC, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's an exciting defensive side of the ball as well in Indy. Uh, with, with all those notes on the Niners, so what, what do you make of the landscape in that division? The Seahawks seem to be Mr. Consistent when it comes to that division, but the Cardinals make the huge trade for DeAndre Hopkins. The Rams are just two years removed from the Super Bowl. The Niners obviously making it 10 minutes away from, from clinching another Super Bowl championship. But what do you make of the strength of this division and, and where everything kind of sits? You could argue this. The, it's been the best division in football for a decade. You know, every team's kind of gone through their ebbs and flows outside of the Seahawks, who have been pretty good throughout ever since Russell Wilson was drafted in 2012. But, I mean, the Niners are loaded. I don't think they're going anywhere. The Rams are a mess right now, but I still believe in Sean McVay, and they've still got a ton of talent on the roster. They just put themselves into a salary cap nightmare some of the big contracts they gave uh, gave out, some of which unwisely, like especially that Todd Gurley deal, and they're still eating a bunch of that money. You look at the Cardinals, man, and that rebuild is seeming to go quicker than expected, right? I mean, they smoked the Seahawks uh, on the road at CenturyLink Field in Week 17, and that was one of Seattle's worst home losses in quite some time. Kyler Murray looks like the real deal. He almost beat the Niners twice. Uh, you look at now, all of a sudden, DeAndre Hopkins is thrown into the mix, right? If they're able to figure some things out defensively, because their defense is a mess last year, Patrick Peterson doesn't look like himself. Um, if they're able to figure some things out on that side of the football, the offense looks like it could be a juggernaut. So at what point, you know, at what team are you counting out at this point, right? All six of those divisional games that each team will play will be so vital or so crucial. And I think you're going to see potentially three teams from the NFC West make the postseason that, you know, you see this now expanded 14 team playoff for the seventh seed in both conferences. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, if that seventh seed as it would have in 2019 with the Rams um, was the same in, in 2020, where you're looking at three teams from that division, making the playoffs. Can absolutely tell that you love this stuff. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the passion is the, that exudes is, is quite obvious. And I just was wondering and curious about um, when, you saw yourself going into this type of work, this, this, this industry, if you will. Oh man. Uh, that's a good question. I like, I'm, I was like every kid growing up, man, like playing sports in the driveway. Like I was a sports kid through and through. Like I knew, so when I, I've, I've known since I was like probably five or six that I wanted to like get into sports broadcasting. Um, when I was young, cause I growing up in Seattle, you're, we were blessed with amazing play by play guys. Dave Niehaus for the Mariners, um, uh, and then Kevin Calabro for the Sonics, man, just mm -hmm. legends, right? So I, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a play-by-play -play guy. Then I got into college, and I was a television broadcast journalism major, and I was like, man, I, that's a risky route. Like, I don't want to get, you know, stuck calling minor league baseball for my whole life, and that's nothing against people who call minor league baseball, and that's their passion and whatever. But I was like, you know what? I love it, but I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not like – I don't sit in the booth and do it. And I'm like, man, I have enough faith in me. that It's going to work out. Right. So I, I pivoted the reporting route um, and, uh, and went that way. And I made the, the kind of the team side, my niche to start. Um, and then now lucky enough to, to have this opportunity with NBC, which I've absolutely loved. And it's been really fun to be on the network side, but yeah, I, I, I honestly have been like, I'm going to work in sports since I was five. I would call my own wiffle ball games. I'd play wiffle ball, by myself, throw it up, <laughs> hit it, 
and announce the games. It was the Mariners versus the Yankees every single time. And the Mariners win every single time. <laughs> I was that weird kid, like, announcing my own wiffle ball games in the driveway growing up. So, uh, yeah, man, it's always been a passion of mine. And I, again, I think it's – you got to love what you do, right, because you got to work for a long-ass time. So, um, you know, it, try to make it something as fun as possible. And I'm very lucky with how things have worked out, for sure. Well, this is more of a support group then because I think we all grew up that way. We all were say, those yeah. weird kids in the yeah. driveway or backyard uh, <laughs> announcing our own – hit a lot of grand slams. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Every time. Every time, Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I would miss the buzzer beaters, but then the great thing about that when you're calling your own game is you can just do it over. Yeah, same exact. Oh my gosh, I did the same thing. I'd like build it up and I'd like miss hit it or miss it and be like, "Wow, that didn't count." (laughs) (laughs) They put time back on the clock. We're going to overtime. It's great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Well, big thanks once again to Joe Fan. Uh, I'm a fan of Joe Fan after talking with him. He's a good guy. Uh, he's a good follow on Twitter as well. You can uh, check him out at Joe underscore fan. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, was nice of uh, him to give us the kind of time that he did uh, here as uh, we prepare for a big week in the NFL with the draft being performed remotely. It should be interesting to see. All right, well, let's get to the post game here. Best and worst. All right, the way we've been doing it is we've been going worst first, then best. I kind of like at least finishing them more on a positive note. So let's start with your worst here for this episode, Jordan. Yeah, I'm just going lighthearted. Um, I, I think like a lot of people have been getting together with friends and, and acquaintances and co-workers, whatever, virtually, of course, uh, trying to avoid the Dak Prescott precedent. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, and, and that comes with it, a, a few libations, that comes with it, a, you know, a, a little Paul Hanna, uh, as we like to say. And uh, a friend of ours uh, had invested in a little larger canned beer as opposed to just, you know, your 12-ounce variety. Uh, and uh, we all had koozies because that's kind of the thing. That's what the friends groups got. Everybody got koozies, and uh, the koozie was not built for the larger beverage, and uh, it was kind of heartbreaking. And so I am in search. I don't know if they exist. I don't know if this is an imp- this is me imploring companies mm. to build them, but uh, koozies built for uh, beverages and cans that are constructed a little bigger because we're, we're trying to be economical, a little less waste, right? Uh, if you're going with a, a, a an upsize in the can, so. That's, that's where my worst is at. Nothing serious, uh, but it was kind of a bit of a buzzkill. Man, hashtag first world problems for Jordan. We that is on a this first very world problem. Essential, uh, I feel like there's a business opportunity here for us. <laughs> very essential business, as a matter of fact, yes. The uh, big-sized beer koozies. Uh, I'm with you, though. Anything to help the Zoom party experience, <laughs> uh, I'm all for it. All right, my worst was uh, versus battles. Have you heard of this? It's V-E-R-Z-U-Z on Instagram was put together by Timbaland and Swizz Beats instead of what we've seen a lot of artists do where they're just maybe playing some of their music or doing some performances on social media for people uh, to enjoy. They came up with the idea of, hey, maybe we match up a couple of people who are big names in the music industry and we sort of have them battle it out just playing some of their hits. And so uh, a couple of great episodes that have taken place you had a battle between DJ Premier and RZA, which was a lot of fun. They basically just went back and forth playing some of their classic beats and, and classic hits. This past weekend, Teddy Riley was set to square off with Babyface. All right. And these are a couple of R&B moguls, right? Teddy Riley with Guy and Blackstreet and some of his writing and uh, producing exploits. And Babyface, one of the great songwriters, uh, really, in all of music. Uh, they were set to go at it. And this thing broke a record for Instagram Live. 
500,000 or almost 500,000 Instagram live viewers. So this thing set records. The problem is it didn't really work. They couldn't figure out some of the technical glitches that were taking place. Teddy Riley had like an echo and then for a while there he couldn't hear anything. The baby face was saying it just turned into a really tragic train wreck, uh, some kind of uh, technological feat here between these two guys. And then of course, you know, it's social media. You got all the younger generation people who are giving it to him. They're like, oh, you might as well try to FaceTime your grandparents. And I was like, oh man, this was, this was rough. It wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And uh, myself being a huge Babyface fan, I was a little bummed out about it. But they promised to run it back at some point here. So uh, fingers crossed. I, um, I was unaware. Uh, so maybe I'm not with the times either. If this was breaking some Instagram live viewership numbers, uh, but <laughs> it sounds like the the uh, technologically uninclined uh, you know senior who's over there. Like, can you hear me? Is this thing on? That's kind of what it was. Uh, yeah. That's that sounds that sounds pretty bad. That's kind of what it was. Yeah, I thought you were going to say I wasn't aware that Teddy Riley or Babyface existed because you're a little younger than me, so I wasn't sure. I, maybe that's where you were going to go. With oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm familiar with the I'm familiar with the names. We'll go with that. <laughs> All right, uh, what's your best, man? Uh, our my best. I don't. Okay, so I got to give a shout out to our guy Grant Nakama, uh, friend of both of ours. I don't know if you got the same text. I don't know if he was listening to an older podcast that we had put out there because we were talking about the, the trailer that was released for The Last Dance. Um, and I said, I wish we could do the segment with the Bulls intro music laid over in the background and kind of doing it. So I don't know if he was doing that, but I got a text at 7 o'clock this morning, and all it was was a link to the YouTube video of the Alan Parsons Project, uh, you know, Serious Eye in the Sky, which is the, the instrumental lead in for the bulls intro music and then of course it kicks in and, and, and all of the the pyrotechnics that go with that uh and that's all he said like no yeah. explanation nothing like he just decided to start the day at seven o'clock and get everybody ready for what was to come later on this afternoon at least our time in hawaii so that uh I, that was the best thing that happened to me this weekend it was just like oh man let's go <laughs> All right. Well, my best is, uh, I don't know if you've heard of this either. I'm kind of getting into this Instagram thing a little heavy here. Yeah, look at you getting hip with the times. The Isolation Wrestling Federation. Have you heard of this? It's a bunch of people uh, spitting wrestling promos with basically, obviously, no means, no real intention of ever actually wrestling. It is basically my favorite part of professional wrestling, which is the trash talking. Uh, and, you know, the, the wrestling just kind of, for me, gets in the way it's like i don't need to see guys sort of fake throw (laughs) themselves around the ring like let's just get to the trash talking that's the funniest stuff that's the most clever aspects of it um and you probably have to excuse some fairly blatant stereotyping with some of the characters uh that are involved professional wrestling Uh, but i did get into the weeds on uh, instagram and it is entertaining for sure a couple of the characters that stood out for me the hipster heartthrob casanova valentine who uh, declared that he was reporting to you live from the guest bedroom at my mom and dad's house Uh, and then you had the cuban (laughs) sensation tony danger kind of sounds like uh, he's doing a bad impression of Al Pacino as Tony Montana in Scarface. I'm just That's just the tip of the iceberg. Check it out. Isolation Wrestling Federation. It is phenomenal. This is great. This is everything that is beautiful about professional wrestling, right? Mm-hmm. No matter which where you look, whether it's the mainstream, whether it's 50th State Wrestling, you go back in the day here in the 808, uh, it is the theater, right? Much more than the the play acting, if you will. It is It is the personalities. It is the trash talk. I got to check this out. I haven't heard of it. So uh, I appreciate the wreck. Yeah, you're welcome. 
in advance. All right, that uh, does it for us. Once again, big thanks to uh, Joe Fan for joining us here on this episode of the podcast. Hit us up on Twitter, at Kanoa Leahy or at Jordan Helley. See you next time. Have a good one, Jordan. See you, man.